Hi, everybody, and welcome. We have truly an exceptional show for you today with two of our exceptional awardees. They are Shireen Bazadi. Shireen is an amazing entrepreneur who grew and is CEO of America's largest network of home improvement franchise businesses. Amazing, amazing career and a story that you just would not believe. We're going to hear a lot more from her. She now advises private equity-owned companies. She leads with empathy and understanding a remarkable person who is also a remarkable leader. With her, we have Susan Holiday. Susan is an expert in fintech, insurtech, global financial services. She has over 30 years in the financial services industry and recently was appointed to the board of a UK-based company called Tangerine Financial. They're PE-backed and they invest in financial services in Africa. Very interesting and lots to learn from Susan. In addition, she's on the advisory board of Celera, which is a PE-owned software company working with the automotive and insurance sectors. She's also a senior advisor with IFC, which is part of the World Bank Group and a non-resident scholar for the Insurance Information Institute. Two amazing women, two incredible stories. We are going to learn a lot today. I'm Lorraine Siegel. I'm the founder, chair and CEO of the Exceptional Women Awardees Foundation. We enable high level, high potential women just like Shireen and Susan to rise to meet their dreams. Why did we start this foundation? Well, I never had a mentor or a coach as I was growing up or early in my career as a lawyer or as a CEO of multiple companies, even as a board director. And I wanted to be sure that women who walk the road less traveled as I had would always be surrounded by a peer-to-peer -peer group of women who would advise and support them for the rest of their lives. And that's exactly what the Exceptional Women Awardees Foundation does and why we bring you these incredible women at our EWA LinkedIn Live show. So let's get right to it and let me welcome again Shireen and Susan. We are so happy to have you here on our show and welcome. I'm going to go straight to Shireen and ask you to tell us your story because you started working, your very first job was at a gas station and there are a lot of people out there who will be awe-inspired by what you've achieved to get to where you are today. So Shireen, welcome and give us a little bit of your backstory. Thank you. It's so great to be here and it's so great to be a part of this fantastic organization. And yes, you're right. I'm an immigrant and I uh, immigrated to the United States when I was 17 years old. By circumstance and not choice, I had to do this alone. I didn't have parents, I had very little money, and I really didn't know how to find my way and navigate my way through the world. And so I did the very first thing I could do, and was, I started working at a gas station. But even then, I had a vision, an expectation that I was gonna do something big. I used to say, I'm gonna run something like a General Motors. General Motors was the place to be back then. And so that, is what guided me and informed me for the rest of my career. I worked full-time at the gas station, paid my way, and it was with that vision and expectation that I ended up going to college, starting at the as a math major, but then switched over to accounting because I thought, I want to understand the language of business, and that's accounting. 
working full-time, going to school full-time, my professors then used to say, we don't know anyone that works as hard as you do, and I think that paid off. This is why when I was graduating, I was recruited by EY, Ernst & Young, and I started a very wonderful career with EY. It was very exciting. Imagine having been an immigrant, working in a gas station, and now I had arrived at EY as a newly minted CPA. I learned a lot, and then it came to, uh, to a point where I realized, if I'm going to reach that vision, which is to run something big, maybe this is not where I need to be. As much as I loved where I was, I moved on. I moved on to work for one of our clients, and that's where I wanted to be because I wanted to learn about operations. So with that in mind, I became a CFO of a mortgage bank, learned a lot about mortgage-backed securities, running operations, customer service. We sold that bank to a larger bank, so I learned about transactions and how to do transitions, all of this in my 20s. So you would think that after that sale, having been a CPA with EY, having been a CFO, that I would move on to another CFO position, but I didn't because I had a vision. I wanted to run a big company, and now I also had another value that was dear, near and dear to me, and that is I wanted to be an involved mother. So with both of those in mind, I decided to go out on my own. So imagine someone with the level of financial insecurity that I would have had, um, taking these steps were very, very difficult. And I didn't know if they were gonna pay off, but I took them because I really had that vision in mind. With that, I came across a company that had a lot of heart, but it was small. It was a franchise system in the home improvement space. And so with that, I stayed there. I, I thought, if I stay here, I can help this company grow. I can test out whether or not I'm cut out to be an entrepreneur. Lots of trials and tribulations, a lot of setbacks, often doubting, did I make the right decision? Should I have moved on to another full-time position? but I stuck with it. And that's the journey of entrepreneurship until we finally, after a few years, landed on what started working for us. And so for the next 10 years, we continued to build until the company grew past experience, expertise, know-how of some of us. So we decided to recruit private equity and I set out to learn how to do that. And for the next couple of years, really worked at creating that network, we had a successful private equity transaction. And with that, everybody else was bought up and this, at the C-level was bought up, except for me. I was commissioned to really see the company to its next phase of, phase of growth with no other C-level executives. For the next four years, that journey was really no stone unturned. We overhauled and changed and accelerated everything. One of our uh, board members said, Shireen, you're trying to change the engine while driving 80 miles an hour, and we did. So the value that we had created for 20-some years um, up until that point, in the next four years, we better than doubled. By the time 2019 came around, we were ready to uh, have another transaction, having added more brands to our platform that we had created and our franchisees were prospering and uh, installing 70,000 units a week. And that's when we sold and I left after 20 years to be here to be able to serve other companies as a board member and help others grow. Wonderful. What a story, Shereen. Truly amazing. And I, you know, so many questions. I also 
uh, as an immigrant, uh, worked all day and went to school at night, and I know how hard that is. So, Susan, you are also an immigrant and come from, obviously, as everybody here you talk, they'll know where you come from. Tell us a little bit about your journey and why financial services and insurance. Thank you, Lorraine. Um, it's great to be here um, with you and Shireen and, and hello to everybody who's who's listening. So um, actually, I have something in common with Shireen, um, although my life story is quite different, but we are both um, accountants and um, we both actually had to learn about mortgage-backed securities, but that's just part of the story. Um, so as you can hear from my voice, I grew up in England and I um, actually am an arts graduate. I did a history degree at Oxford, but then I was attracted to going into financial services just because of the opportunities, I think. It was a very dynamic time. We had something called Big Bang, where the financial services industry was kind of deregulated um, and was really growing quickly. And I soon realized that in order to get there, given that I didn't know anything about finance and financial services, it would be a really good idea to get a professional qualification. And that's what led me to working in an accountancy firm and becoming a chartered accountant, which is not a, you know, not an easy thing to do. So um, my career started off in insurance just by chance because I was allocated to a department that focused on insurance in the city of London. And I soon realized that it was a sector that not that many people knew about. Um, where there were a lot of interesting things to do. And so it's been the thread through my whole career, but I've had all sorts of um, different jobs in different companies, uh, different countries even. And um, eventually it took me at a much older age than Shirin. So I was 49 um, when I moved to the US, although funnily enough, I'd been thinking of moving to the US to New York in the early 90s, but it didn't work out um, because I got offered another job in England. But um, so I moved here for what I would call the second stage of my career um, to work for the IFC, which is part of the World Bank Group. And then that led me to the third stage of my career, which I'm in now, which um, like Shireen, and as you said, Lorraine, in the introduction, is um, being a board director and advising uh, management and um, boards of companies, um, particularly focused on financial services and insurtech and, and fintech all around the world. That's Susan, amazing. And and by the way, people are coming in from all over the world and commenting where they're from all over North America. So thank you, everybody. We're so happy to have you here uh, and to welcome you. And please don't forget to put your questions in as well as where you're from. Uh, we welcome every question that we can possibly get to within our short time together, and we'll try and answer them. So Susan, back to you for a moment. You know you rush very quickly over it, but having a degree from Oxford is no small undertaking. Was that something you'd aspire to? And, and tell us a little bit about that. Um, absolutely, yes. And in fact, um, the, so I decided when I was about eight years old that I wanted to go to Oxford. And what's funny about it is I had never actually physically been to the city of Oxford. So I don't really know why I wanted to go there, but I just did. And um, it, it's, it's wonderful. I really encourage anyone who goes to England, if you haven't, to visit Oxford. It's very historical. Um, the university dates back to the 13th century, believe it or not. And I was in a very old and uh, beautiful and historical college. But the challenge that I had, which actually links to what I was talking about earlier, was that, you know, that was my ambition in life. 
right? So at 18, I'd achieved my lifetime's ambition, but you know, I was definitely going to live for many, many, many decades after that. And it was a bit of a dilemma to kind of decide what do I do now? And, and it was thinking about that and talking with some of my friends that you know made me decide to go into financial services to get the accounting qualification and, and all the rest of it. But I do think that being an arts graduate in financial services gives me a different perspective. Um, and that's what we need. We like, need people like Shireen who are maths geniuses, but we need people who kind of think in a different way and you know have a diversity of background and experience um, as well in management teams and in, and in boardrooms. So Susan, you uh, were obviously a very hard worker. You still are a hard worker. And I think that's probably something all three of us share. Uh, but you also had time for a hobby, and that hobby had something to do with horses, right? Tell us a little bit about your horse experience, because you, it, you know, it was pretty impressive what you achieved. Yes, so I learned to ride when I was about three years old, because I have a sister who's three years younger than me. And when she was born, one of my mother's friends gave her a pony for the baby. But the problem is, babies can't ride ponies because they can't sit up. So um, three is about the right age to learn to ride a pony. So I learned to ride when I was three. We had lots and lots and lots of ponies when I was growing up. And it was something that our whole family could enjoy together because my sister was and still is a very good rider. My mom likes horses and my dad used to like attending the horse events because they had tractors and cows and sheep and he liked driving the big horse truck um, and all the rest of it. And so, um, I really did a lot of riding um, until I went to university and then not so much. And I actually started again when I was doing my accountancy finals because I wanted something to take my mind off it and something to look forward to, bought another horse and started competing again in show classes. And then for many years, I had lots of lovely horses and I went to the horse of the year show. I won the Royal International Horse Show. I became a horse judge and all sorts of things. But um, to some of the points that were mentioned earlier, all competitive sport is very hard work and it can be also very heartbreaking. Um, you know, horses are fragile animals. They have a lot of injuries. You have lots of highs and lows. Um, and it was definitely a very um, demanding hobby at the same time as having a full time job and, and traveling around the world, working for banks and working for major insurance companies. Yeah, and it's pretty expensive too. Horses are not inexpensive animals to take care of with vet bills and travel bills and all the rest of it. We have lots of questions coming in. So let's see, here's one from Ingrid Jacobs. These are such impressive career journeys. Oh, wow, okay, that's nice. Amazing EWA members. I would agree with you, Ingrid, absolutely. And then there's a wonderful question from Danette and Lee. What tips do you have for building your support network when you're starting in a new country? Oh, we like that one as three immigrants. Okay, Shireen, go for that. Well, I have to say that um, having immigrated when I was so young and very poor, um, there was really no sense understanding of what a network would look like. I think what uh, ended up happening was as I moved forward with my career as a CPA, making connections with individuals that I thought were of like mind, that were more of my peers and I really uh, finding help where I could. 
So what Lorraine said at the beginning of this podcast was so spot on for me where um, I didn't have a mentor. I, there was nobody that looked like me in the world of franchising or finance or um, and wherever I sat. So I really ended up finding help in bits and pieces in places where I thought somebody could be of the like mind and being able to uh, grow from there. And throughout my career, as we were building the company, being entrepreneurs between working full time and raising children and wanting to do all of those things well, I really didn't take the time to create the network that I would, really should have. And so that's why I'm here now. I think it's important for us in general, and especially for women, um, to be mindful of networks and how important those things are. And that's maybe in the third phase of my life, I'm emphasizing more. Love that. And Susan, I know you have, certainly in financial services, it's not easy to find other women. But in general, how did you build your network in immigrating to the US? Well, during most of my career, I didn't know what networking was. But once I realized what it was, people told me that I was actually naturally really good at it. And I'm one of the people who enjoys it because my what makes me happier than anything else is that two plus two equals five. So if I can bring two people together or 10 people for that matter, but to do something that benefits everybody, um, and really adds value. I, that is you know, one of the things that makes me the most happy in the whole world. So I actually learned a bit of a lesson. I worked for a short period of time in Zurich, Switzerland, and I didn't like it at all. And um, the company I worked for was very nice and let me relocate back to London, back to the UK. But um, when I moved to the US, I kind of learned from that and I made sure that I knew um, a few people and reached out to them in the DC area, which is where I live. And I also joined some groups and I'm still a member of some of them. Others I haven't had anything to do with for five years, but um, you know, I was intentional about getting involved um, in the local community, meeting people, volunteering, doing all sorts of different things. Um, also to meet different types of people. So not only to meet professional people working in financial services, but to meet you know, a wider variety of, of people. And that worked really well. And I think it, um, you know, it made my transition here much easier. Very, very interesting. To go back to the business issues, and um, my producer will bring up questions as they come in if we can. Um, I wanted to ask you, Shireen, when you were building the company, you needed to raise capital. How did you go about raising capital and finding the right partner? Yes, that's a very good question and a question that's near and dear to my heart. Um, first of all, in order to raise capital, and I've now had a great fortune of speaking on this topic and working with companies in this topic, so I've seen a range. In order to raise capital and raise it successfully, you first have to build something that's valuable. So there are, there are no shortcuts. The foundation of what you have needs to be sound. And so how do you know that? That your organization, your company should have promises for growth, but also that you understand the numbers, even though you may not be a CPA, you need to understand how the numbers working together could allow for the next person or an investor to come in to as well prosper 
Knowing all of those things, then what we did was uh, first assess whether or not we were in the right place for raising capital. Did we have enough value to bring to someone? Was there enough of a white space for growth to happen? Once we knew all of that, uh, we used our network. I specifically used my network of people in the world of finance to find the right partners that could help us better recruit private equity or other investors that would fit our culture well. When all of those things happen, it took time. When all of those things happen, then we were ready to secure private equity investment. So the point is, not only do you wanna make sure you're foundationally sound and you have room for growth, but you also want to make sure that you bring the right partners in as long as you want to stay and grow the company with them. And it's not easy to find the right PE partners because it really is a marriage and an integration of very different interests. So that's a tough one. A lot, a lot of absolutely, have, which companies can learn from. Um, I, there are a couple other questions that have come in. One of them from Kimberly. Thanks, Kimberly. What surprised you the most about business in the U.S.? So, Susan, what do you think about that? And then I have a follow-up question for you on that too. Um, yeah, this is a, a, an interesting one because I'd been to the US hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times on business and on vacations before I moved here. Um, but I have to say that when I did come to live here, I was pretty horrified um, about the state of the financial services industry. Um, I didn't think it was efficient at all compared to the UK and Europe, but also compared to some other markets I worked in, um, in Asia and Africa and so on. So um, it was not very digital and still is not. Um, it takes a very long time. People still use things like checks. Um, it takes a very long time for um, money transfers um, to, to clear. For example, there's still a lot of human intervention with things that in the UK and Europe and Asia and so on are just done online or um, on your phone. So that's one thing. And the other thing, and, and that's an opportunity too. The other thing that's interesting is that the US is such a massive country with so many opportunities, which is why people like me and Shireen want to live here. Um, but it also means that companies can become quite kind of insular and not necessarily look beyond the borders either for growth or, or for inspiration and ideas and how to do things better. So I think that's an example of where being in such a strong country with such a big economy, so geographically massive and, and diverse, it is great, but it can be a, di a, a disadvantage if you kind of cut yourself off from the rest of the world. So those are the two things that, that surprised me when I got it. So you're investing now through Tangerine or on the board of Tangerine, investing in financial services in Africa. I come from South Africa, as you know, and when I emigrated here 47 years ago, the financial services in South Africa were far more sophisticated than they were here in the US, which was an enormous surprise to me. What are you hoping to do in the investment environment in financial services in Africa? Yes, yeah, so um, it's very interesting. And I've done a lot of work um, at the IFC um, and the World Bank on this as well. So the opportunity is obviously immense. Um, it's a gigantic continent with lots of people and maybe more importantly, lots of young people. 
and the penetration of financial services is really low. Less people have bank accounts and very few people um, you know, have insurance um, and those type of things. Um, but that's the opportunity, right? It's like where everyone doesn't have shoes. Does that mean you shouldn't open a shoe company or does it mean that you can sell shoes to everybody? So what companies are trying to do is the famous leapfrog. Um, so instead of going through all the phases of financial services, um, like we just discussed in the previous question in the US, for example, to go straight to digital um, financial services, uh, more um, kind of real time transactions, not necessarily having to have all the same products where it takes ages to be reimbursed or where you have to buy a policy um, for a year, things like that, making things like money transfer much easier. And there are some great examples. The one that's really famous is the um, banking on your phone M-Pesa in Kenya, which I can definitely tell you works a lot better than most banking um, in the US. So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity, but it's also a challenge because people don't have that much understanding of financial services you don't grow up with it you don't go to the go to the bank with your parents or you know get your first car insurance when you're 16 or 17 like perhaps we did but the opportunity is massive and what's exciting for me is to kind of start and build companies how they should be now rather than having to deal with the legacy systems and issues um, that some of these companies that are you know 50 100 150 years old are are facing oh very interesting i wish we could talk a lot more about that but i do want to go to shireen and talk about women in franchising now you built the you grew and, and built the largest home improvement franchising set of companies in the world really and there are not many women what is your experience in that area well, um, there are absolutely not a lot of women in franchising, or at least wasn't then. I think there are def we've seen a lot of improvement in that space as, as across the board with everything. And certainly not a lot of uh, franchise systems backed by private equity run by women. In fact, um, the statistics showed um, back in 2019 that only 3% of companies that are backed by private equity regardless of industry is run by women ceos i call that a rounding error that means you actually have to work at it to not have a lot of women in the position of power um, i'm seeing a lot of good momentum in um, women moving up through the ranks the reason perhaps why not as much as in franchising or certainly not in the home space was a, more of tradition and how things had just grown organically. Most of these franchise systems are created by founders and they've generally been around a lot, lot of years. Um, I think as women ha have now shown um, some experience in various areas of franchising from development to finance to training, uh, we're seeing much more upward momentum, but there's a lot of work to be done. And so it's important to have emphasis on that. There are organizations such as IFA that are promoting women, networking with each other and supporting each other and mentoring each other. And of course, organizations like this where um, hopefully we get to have more women to have more confidence, more of a, a, an ability to own their own strengths and be able to promote their own strengths and be able to declare them and as well ask for better positions. Well, it's we have to work hard and find some women in private equity. We have a few in EWA, we need some more. 
and we want to make sure that we help support them so that they can continue to invest in women-owned businesses. I know that there are many questions out there. We, we don't have time for too many, but let's put up one at least uh, from uh, Ellen. Ellen in New York. Oh, she wants to know what does the Insurance Information Institute do, Susan, and uh, why is it necessary? Give us a little bit of that. Sure. Um, thank you. So the Insurance Information Institute, which normally calls itself Triple I, which is quite a, a neat name, is really a think tank. Um, and it's focused on what we call the property casualty um, insurance industry in the US. So it does a lot of research, um, economic um, type research. It also brings together major companies in the industry to discuss topics that are um, important um, for example things to do with um, road safety or um, what to do about um, climate related um, losses and so on and um, it acts as a kind of um, information depository so you'll see triple i quoted in the press quite a lot because um, journalists and um, other people like that will go there to ask questions when they want to understand something to do with insurance so it was an honor to be asked to be a non-resident scholar and um, i've spoken with them on a number of panels at conferences and i actually went to one of their events in new york earlier on this year which was great so they do some interesting and important work i love it i think that's so great to have your own think tank within your industry i know many industries do but congratulations susan on that I want to go to you, to Shireen, for a very uh, personal question because you said that you would be happy to talk about this because it was so impactful. Um, you were diagnosed with a brain tumor. Tell us a little bit about that and what happened after that. Yes, well, um, I, end of 2009, was very, very sick. I just was in and out of hospitals and couldn't figure out what was wrong. It was shocking because I had been fit. I had um, been very focused on working hard, but of course, as well, taking care of my health. Very busy person like many of us. And so when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor that was lodged between my optic nerves that had grown tentacles around arteries, I was pretty shocked. I, this is one of those things that happened to, we don't think it would ever happen to us. And um, what the way we treated it was uh, through endonasal endoscopy of 15 hours of brain surgery that had setbacks and I had to learn to walk again and talk and uh, months and months of high fevers and failures of all kinds. Um, but I was back at work within six weeks, um, not physically yet, but I started working again. And within before the end of the year, I was already working out and uh, what that experience taught me was actually a lot of things. We, in my family, my children call our lives pre-brain tumor and post-brain tumor, and I promise you the post-brain tumor is so much better, so much richer. Not only did I learn that in life, progress happens one step at a time. So I literally had to put one foot in front of the other, take a couple of steps and go back down and sleep and start again. But then again, that applied to everything else in life. I realized that it's all about small steps and keeping them consistent. What it also taught me was what mattered in my life was going to be to have people in my life that I cared for and cared for me, 
and as well that I wanted to do right. That's where my motto of doing well by doing good really crystallized. It, that to me, it mattered more to do the right things in life and do right by people and then reap the rewards. And I have to say, that is exactly why I ended up succeeding so much more. Everything accelerated from that point on. It was because I learned my best fundamentals of life and, it, and I passed that test. Amazing, amazing. You know, to our audience, and I'm sure you will agree with me, both Shireen and Susan have overcome so many odds. They have succeeded in spite of things that have happened to them uh, and have made enormous strides to help people around them and change our world for the better. So I am so honored to have both of you as part of our EWA sisterhood. And I know many of our sisterhood who are watching feel the same way. And uh, thank you so much for your insights. I wish we had a lot more time, but I'm already over time for the show. And so we have to end and thank you so much. Uh, we look forward to having you back one day very soon. But this is not the end for everybody. We have another wonderful show coming up very soon. And if you haven't seen the movie Jerry Maguire, please go and see it because we have the original Jerry Maguire on our show. It is David Meltzer, who indeed was the co-founder of Sports One Marketing and formerly served as CEO of the renowned Lee Steinberg sports and entertainment industry, which was indeed the inspiration for the movie Jerry Maguire. His life's mission is to empower over 1 billion people. We're going to ask him how he's going to do that. And he is my kind of guy. I love that mission in life. In the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a question today because you can see that both Susan and Shireen are women leaders who have enormous empathy and kindness in the way that they relate to people. And I want to ask you, did you show empathy to at least one person this week? And if you haven't, go do it and then email me. My email is up on the screen and let, you, let me know the, the circumstances. In the meantime, please do watch the show again if you want to on our YouTube channel, share it, go to Amazon Music or Spotify, it's going to be up there. And again, join me in thanking our amazing women leaders who have been with us today. I look forward to seeing you on our next show. Bye, everybody. Thank you.